0: Great job, guys, thank you. Hey, thanks, good job, buddy. Adam, Nice work, appreciate you guys. Um, the Canons are awesome people and, uh, and you, should, you should give them a high five for being awesome. Um, as you just heard uh, and we've been hearing throughout these last couple of weeks, John's Gospel is big. It starts big, uh, it, it's, it, it, it encompasses all of history, all of creation. And it takes us as far back as we can possibly go to the beginning. Right? It says, in the beginning was the word. And if you go back to the beginning of the scriptures, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, the first book of the Bible, the first chapter of the Bible, it starts the same way. In the beginning, in the beginning, the world was formless and it was dark, but God spoke. He said, let there be light and there was and beauty and the potential for beauty bursts into the world. What John is saying when he uses that same terminology in the beginning, what he's saying is when Jesus shows up, when he's born in a manger, God's acting the exact same way. That he's bringing a light. He's bringing us face to face with a light that can't be snuffed out and can't be turned back. But there's this interesting thing that happens in this beginning of the Gospel of John. Right in the middle of this description of light coming into the world and the life of Jesus, we're introduced to this guy named John. Not the Gospel writer, a different John. But we're introduced to something else as well. We're introduced to the key verb in the entire gospel, believe. So we're introduced to John and we're introduced to this key verb, believe. So today we're going to talk more about light. We're going to talk about what light lets us do. It lets us see. So we're going to talk about seeing and responding to what we see. And we're going to talk about faith. And there are two thoughts that I'm hoping frame the next few minutes as we walk through this together, as we talk about faith and belief and light What you see matters, that's number one, what you see matters, and how you respond to what you see matters. Okay, with those two things, let's look back at verse six. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. Okay, so first, who was John and what is it that he saw? What did he witness Well, if you've been uh, around church, maybe you grew up in the church, or maybe you come at at holidays, whatever the case may be, we're really glad that you were here. But you've maybe heard of John the Baptist. That's who this is. That's this John, John the Baptist. And we know from Luke's gospel that John was the son of a priest and actually the cousin of Jesus. John's father's name was Zechariah, the priest. And uh, prior uh, to to John's birth, Zechariah couldn't speak. He was a priest, and an angel comes to him from God and says, you're going to have a son, even at your age. And, and Zechariah can't believe him. He, he kind of laughs at him almost. And, and so he's rendered unable to speak, which is a crazy thing. The angel showing up, the inability to speak, those are all crazy things. The not trusting God when he says really difficult things, that's pretty normal. But the other two things are, are, are pretty crazy. But then when John is born, he, he's given back the ability to speak. He actually writes it down. He says, my son's name is John, and then he's able to speak Again, and and when he's able to speak, he bursts with joy into song. He says this. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come to his people to redeem them. And he's risen up a horn of salvation for us from inside the house of his servant David. I mean, you don't sing a song like that when your son is born unless you know your son is destined for big things. Zechariah knew his son was going to be connected to big things. He knew his son was going to see and be part of, of great things was. John grew up to be a pretty unique guy. He hangs out with people in the desert. Uh, he starts baptizing them when they when they turn back to God. They say, we haven't been living for God, and we want to turn back to him. And he says, okay, let's get baptized. So he starts baptizing people. Uh, he wears crazy clothes. He eats bugs. All this is in the Bible. And he grows to say some interesting things as well. So he does some interesting things, but he says some interesting things too. Uh, at one point, when people are coming out to him to be baptized, because news is spreading that that John's getting this following, and people are coming and they're repenting, and they're saying, "God, we want to turn back to you." So at one point, some people come out to him, and he looks at them and he points. He says, "You brood of vipers! Nice, good to see you too, John." Uh, and he continues and he says, "You have to produce good fruit in keeping with repentance, because uh, if not, you'll be cut down and thrown into the fire." It's like so. John was a real people person, right? Um, around the same time, he's you know calling people brood of vipers. Jesus shows up out at the desert as well. And John sees him coming, and he greets him very differently. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. John knew who Jesus was, and he didn't have any problem telling him. And so Jesus comes to John and he says, I want to be baptized too. And John's really reluctant about this. He says, I don't know if I should do this. And Jesus convinces him that it's a right thing to do. He says, baptize me too. So he does. So John baptizes Jesus and then he sees, John sees, along with everybody else that's there, the heavens open up and the spirit of God descends like a dove and the voice of God for everybody to hear says to Jesus, you are my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. John's father knew that John was going to be connected with big things, and he was. John got to see. He got to be a front row witness to this ultimate confrontation between light and dark. He sees the long night of death and division and brokenness. It's all coming to an end through Jesus, through Emmanuel, through God with us, through a light that is coming into the world. So John was a strange person, not necessarily somebody you'd invite to your Christmas party. But God used him as a witness, as a seer and a teller so that he could point people to the Savior. And so let me say this as as we talk about who John is. And for some of us, this will be the most important thing that I say today. If you're here and you don't feel like God can use you because you're different or because you're imperfect, it's clear God uses people, all kinds of people. I'm pretty sure he can use you. To witness and reflect his light so that all might come to what? To believe. If you're here today and you think God can use people but he can't use you, please don't buy that lie. And don't make the mistake of thinking that God has stopped calling people to witness to the light so that others can believe. God is still very much in that business. That's why the gospel writer drops this story of John right in the middle of the story of Jesus. This big, massive story of Jesus coming, light in darkness. He drops this little story of John right in the middle for us. He wanted to be sure that we connected the light coming into the world with people witnessing about it because it matters, because what you see matters. I didn't grow up in the church. I wasn't a, f- a follower of, of Jesus growing up, and so I spent a lot of my early life and up until my late teens trying to f- teens trying to figure out how to, how to navigate the world, how to live in, in the world. And so basically I developed an idea that I was supposed to put myself first, which seemed pretty reasonable. Actually, it wasn't that I was particularly unkind to anybody. It's just... Uh, I, would, I would process every decision with, does this help me move forward? Does this make things easier on me, better for me? If so, then I'll say yes to it. If it makes, uh, if, if it inconveniences me, if it, if it makes me have to position myself behind someone else, I'll probably just say no to that. And that seemed pretty reasonable. But eventually, over time, that actually started to feel pretty dark and pretty lonely. And so in my late teens, I started to ask questions about whether or not there was another way. Is there another way of being? Or is this just how things are supposed to be? You always put yourself first and you get as far ahead as you possibly can. But around that same time, uh, I had a lot of people in my life who, who looked and loved a lot like Jesus and it had a huge impact on me. But also during this time, I started to be interested in and in reading more about the civil rights movement in the US and, uh, and how people treated people and why people treated people that way. And one of the things I read was uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Letters from a Birmingham Jail. Let me give you the backstory on why Dr. King wrote that. In uh, April 16th, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested and sent to jail because he and others were protesting the treatment of blacks in Birmingham, Alabama. And the court had ordered that King and his people couldn't they couldn't protest peacefully or not in Birmingham. But King and King and others they decided to protest anyway. And so they 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 protest segregation. And systemic racism, uh, and, they're, and they're arrested for it. And while King was in jail, he writes this letter to the Birmingham newspaper explaining why he was willing to do what he'd done. And he talked about things like unjust laws and how those uh, should and shouldn't be followed. But more than anything else, the main reason he said, I was willing to, to, to go to jail for this peaceful protest, he says, here's the reason. I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was his reason. King believed that segregation was antithetical to the gospel, and so he believed that God came to earth to tear down dividing walls between people and to be Lord of all people. And he was convinced that peace over division and justice over hate were at the heart of the good news Jesus came to bring, and he was willing to go to jail for it. When I read that in my late teens for the first time, when I saw that example and the examples of others in my life that were, that there were actually people who were willing to sacrifice to change this world for the better because of what they believe about eternity, who were willing to live as light in darkness because of who Jesus is, it made following Jesus something that was interesting. Because if following Jesus has practical implications on this world, here and now, along with the hereafter, because both are important, it seemed possible that following Jesus was something I wanted to do. Here's the thing, not everyone is going to become a social revolutionary, but I promise people are still interested when somebody loves like Jesus loves. I sure was. What you see matters because it can change you. If, and this is a big if, if you respond to what you see, because how you respond to what you see matters too. Verse 10 of John's uh, opening chapter continues this way in one translation. The world to which God came, it was his own creation, and the world should have known him, but the world didn't know him, not because he was a stranger, but because he was estranged from them. The world didn't know him because people sometimes forget what we're looking for. Sometimes we forget what it is that we're looking for. It's like if you look at bad copies long enough, sometimes it's hard to recognize the original. And this knowing that's talked about in the scriptures, that the gospel talks about, it's not just an intellectual assent. Like if you know him in your head, that's enough. That's not, that's not what the Bible is talking about. This knowing is more of a, more of a total relatedness, a closeness, relationship. It's rooted in a choice to embrace not just the intellect and not just the heart, but the entire human will. It's responding with every aspect of who we are to what we see. It's what the scriptures might call walking in the light. That's what it means to know Him. Because what you believe, again, the the key verb in the gospel, what you believe should lead to a response. Let me give you an example. I've told this story before and I have a, a strict one year uh, policy on stories like this. I only tell them once a year and, uh, and I'm coming to the end. And so I got to get this one in uh, and I think it makes sense here. Uh, some of you know this story when I asked Abby to marry me. It was 4th of July uh, of the year 2000 in my in-laws basement. That's that's it. I know it sounds super romantic, right? But I did have a better plan. I had a plan that was really worked out. Um, Uh, But just didn't work out. So uh, Abby spent the summer of 2000 in Guatemala, and she she loved and she served vulnerable children there. And it was just incredible. And I visited her for the middle week of that summer, uh, and that was a life-changing experience for me. That's a story for another time as well. But when she came back, as she was returning, I realized two things. One, she was the most beautiful, lovely, wonderful person I had ever met in my entire life. And two, I didn't want to miss another adventure. I wanted to be right beside her for every single adventure. So I decided that when uh, she got off the plane, I was going to drop to one knee, and the first thing, I was going to ask her to marry me, That's that, and it was going to be great, because the whole family was going to be there, her brother, sister, family, friends, balloons, banners, and me on one knee. It was going to be great, right? Uh, and this is back in the day when you could go through security and go all the way back to the gate, um, and so we were going to, right when she got off the plane... So there was one complication. The complication was I had talked to my mother-in-law about this plan. I'd asked her blessing uh, to ask Abby to marry me, and she was uh, humbling, very, very uh, excited about that. But I hadn't talked to Abby's dad yet, and so she was going to help. She said, "Okay, here's what we'll do. We'll go through security, and I'll take the rest of the family, and I'll leave you and Steve, my now father-in-law, back kind of behind, and we'll, we'll create a lag. And you can talk to him from the security back to the gate and have this great conversation, and with his blessing, then ask her to marry. When, you, when she gets off the plane, I said, "This is great. I love this plane. This is wonderful." And everything was going to plan. She fulfilled her end of the deal. She she got everybody up, and it was just me and Abby's dad. And so you've been through a security thing before. You take everything out of your pockets and you go through, and then you go through the thing, and it buzzes if you have something, it doesn't buzz. So I put everything I'm like good and go through. And I'm getting ready to ask Abby's dad if I could have her hand in marriage, and right about that time, it goes, Ehh. "That's bad, right?" And so you don't want to hear a buzzer when you're about to do that. And I'm like, "Oh no, I don't. Nope, I'm good. I have everything." Um, save one thing. I mean, I had an, an engagement ring in my, in my pocket, which I didn't want to get out because I hadn't talked to Abby's dad yet. And so, um, uh, funny thing, sometimes they put a little metal band on the back of a ring box. Uh, just check that next time in case uh, you, you, you have a situation like this. So I didn't know that at the time, so it's going off, right? And I realize, oh no, the ring's in the pocket, but I don't want to get it out because then he'll see and he'll know that I'm going to ask her to marry me, but I haven't talked to him yet. And so I'm starting to get flustered and the guy comes over with a wand you know, the wand, and it's like, Bip,ip,ip,ip. and uh, this is the year 2000, I wanted to look nice for my engagement photo, so I had my nicest cargo pants on, so there's a lot of pockets to work through, and uh, don't judge me, and uh, so, so he got to da-da-da, and then boom, it was right here, and left-handed, and so it was in my left pocket, and he was like, hey, there's something in your pocket, can you please get that out of your pocket, now, here's the choice moment, you can say, yes, of course, because you are superior to me, I kind of mumbled, Uh Uh-uh. I think it was like, uh uh-uh. I tried to get no out, but I couldn't. uh Uh-uh. That's the wrong answer. So then other security guards start to come over, and it's like a police action happening right in the security area. Abby's dad's standing right there. Eventually, I have to get the ring box out, and I open it up. I'm like, I'm going to ask... My, I'm going to ask this lady to marry me. She's like, oh, okay. So they were cool about it, but I'm mortified. I'm sweating, and I'm red-faced, and I'm just this kid doesn't know up from down. And so I'm so embarrassed I don't talk to Abby's dad. So we get down. Abby gets off the plane, hugs, kisses, pictures. And then Abby's mom starts to talk to me with her eyes. And she said, she, she's like, hey, this is the moment, guy. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but I didn't because I got so embarrassed back there. I haven't told you yet. I'm telling her with my eyes. I didn't, haven't told you yet. Uh, but I, I didn't get to talk to him, so I don't want to mess this up. And she's like, you are messing this up. And I'm like, I know. And eventually we just leave. And so I get myself together later and I ask Abby to marry me in my in-law's basement. Okay, so here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, yeah, so if you've got any engagement story, it's better than that one. Um, here's the thing. If someone would have asked me what I thought about Abby on the night that I proposed to her, if they asked me, do you think, do you believe that Abby's the most beautiful, lovely, wonderful person in this world, and you would be uh, so lucky to spend the rest of your life with her, I would have said, yes, absolutely, because that was true. But if they would have followed up that question by saying, so what do you do? What do you do with that truth? And if I would have responded, nothing, it's just true. I might have had all the right ideas about relationship, but that's very different than taking a step of commitment in relationship. What I saw led me to believe, led me to believe about Abby that, that, that I couldn't be without her. I didn't want to be without her. What I saw led me to what I believed. And what I believed led me to respond with commitment. See, what you see matters because it leads to what you believe, and that can change you if you respond to what you see. So if you see Jesus as Savior, but you continue to walk in darkness, what does it matter who he is? If you see Jesus as Lord but you aren't moved to have compassion for people, have love for even difficult people, have faithfulness in your relationships, have truthfulness in your actions, what does it matter who he is? If you see Jesus as God with us but you don't realize grace and forgiveness are available for you, what does it matter who he is? If you see Jesus but you put yourself, your preferences, your comfort first, what does it matter who he is? John was a witness, and he believed, and it changed his life, how he lived, and what he did, not just what he thought. See, intellectual assent it won't get us there. That's not the fullness of belief, and why not? Why won't just an intellectual assent that, yeah, I believe in who Jesus is, and now I'm going to go on about my life. Why is that not enough? Because when you get right down to it, what you believe, again, the key verb, what you believe in, is going to have to hold up. Not just when things are going right. It's going to have to hold up when things aren't going right as well. Not long after Jesus is baptized, John questions everything. He asks, basically, is is Jesus worth, worth giving everything up for? Is what I have seen and believed, is it worth it? John gets thrown into prison because people that speak up against People in power that aren't living the right way often get themselves in trouble, and, and John does. He speaks out against the morality of people in power and how, how their living isn't pointing to God and it not bringing light to the world, and he gets arrested uh, and, and basically sentenced to death. And so he sends word back to Jesus, and he asks him a question. He says, he says are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Well, how do you ask that question? He was there. Remember, John was there when the heavens opened up and God said, This is my son whom I love. He was there. He saw it. But pain has this way of making us doubt. And so Jesus responds back to John in this state of pain and confusion and frustration and disappointment. He sends word back. He says, Go back to John and tell him what you've seen. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are being cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Did you get that? Jesus' response to John's question, are you the one, are you really worth giving everything up for, are you worth following even when it hurts? Jesus' response wasn't to say, I'll go save John from the trouble, from the pain, from the struggle. I'm going to go save him. No, Jesus responds to him, remember what you've seen. Because remembering what you see will give you the hope you need to endure. So Jesus points John back to what he's seen. He's trying to tell him, like, look, you'd never deny that the sun exists just because it's momentarily blotted out by the clouds. Some of you know uh, my friend Jason passed away unexpectedly a few months ago. Uh, He was the first person to invite me into ministry, so I'm standing here very literally because of him. Um, He was the first person to invite me into a small group. I had no idea what uh, deep male relationships could be like until Jason. And so he was uh, a wonderful, uh, Christ-like man who who cared for the needy and gave his life for the vulnerable and he left too soon. And he left uh, a wife and two kids. And Sophie, his wife and I were talking not long after the funeral and I asked her how she was doing. Which is kind of a weird question. Um, and she said, uh, well, I'm struggling. Um, But then she said something that was just so profound to me and has stuck with me through a really difficult season. She said, even though I don't get God right now, and honestly, I'm disappointed with him. I'm disappointed he didn't heal Jason. Uh, I don't question whether he's real or whether he's good. I mean, that took me, that blew me away. I mean, she doesn't seem to be enjoying multiple expressions of, of God's goodness these days. How could she say that? And so I had to ask, why, why not? Why don't you question whether he's good or whether he's, he's real? And she, her response was this. She said, because it would be foolish to discredit all that I've seen him do before just because he didn't act the way I wanted him to now. That's faith built on what you've seen. God really has done some incredible things in Sophie's life, her story, including bringing Jason into it. And so for her, it would be foolish in her estimation to say that he isn't good because so much goodness has happened in her life. That blew me away. And it showed me a faith so strong and so bright that there is no darkness that can snuff it out. But what if you hear that and and you say, okay, well, I'll look back. I'll look back at what I've seen. and, And you say, well, I... I'm going to be honest, I don't see his goodness. I just don't see it. I don't see it in the world. I don't see it in my story. Not here, not back then. The question I would have is, is it possible that God's goodness is present, but we might not know exactly where to look for it? I mean, is his goodness only present when the kids are acting right? Or the spouse is fulfilling our needs, or we're getting the affirmation in our job that, that we want? Is his goodness only when difficult people are silent and it's all green lights all the time is that where his goodness is or is it possible that God's goodness is in the very air we breathe the ears we hear with the heartbeat in our chest that we do nothing to make happen is God's goodness in the people that he puts in our path to love for as long as they're here is God's goodness in the desire he gives us to care for them is his goodness in the eyes he's given us to see and the minds he's given us to remember. See, we call all kinds of things faith, but they might not actually be faith. They might be wisdom. You know, Be honest, be kind, be good, be patient. Those are wisdom. Those are practical ways that God says, this is a better way for you to live. But faith, that gut check faith is that moment when you come face to face with a God who, who could make things better and he doesn't, at least for a time. And you trust him anyway because of what you've seen. That kind of faith changes things. Let me give you another example. During the deepest, darkest days of the apartheid in in South Africa, segregation by another name, the apartheid, the government, tried to, to shut down all opposition. So at the height of tension between the ruling government and the mostly unrep- unrepresented people of South Africa, the government canceled political rallies. They said, you can't gather together. That's, that's not cool. And so Archbishop Desmond Tutu decided to hold a church service instead. And uh, St. George's Cathedral in Cape Town, South Africa, South Africa, filled with people to the brim with worshipers. That was inside. Outside the cathedral, hundreds of police gathered as a show of force intended to intimidate the worshipers. And as Desmond Tutu was was preaching, the police entered the cathedral. They were armed with guns, and they lined the walls. So imagine, like, just police, boom, just lining the walls, looking in on the worshipers, and they took out notebooks, and they started to record everything that Desmond Tutu, the archbishop, was saying. And at one point during his sermon. The Archbishop turns to the police and he says, You are powerful. You're very powerful. But you're not God. And I serve a God who cannot be mocked. So since you've already lost, since you've already lost, I invite you today to come and join the winning side. Can you imagine? congregation erupted in singing and dancing, and the intimidation had failed. The attempt had failed. The police didn't know what to do. Intimidation, despair had been overcome by confidence in a God who had shown himself to be good and on the side of the brokenhearted. If God isn't acting the way you want him to in this Advent season, and you're headed toward Christmas, and you want things to be better, and they're not, he's not acting the way you want him to, remember what you've seen Remember that he came to dwell with us. Remember there's no darkness that can overcome his light. Of course you didn't ask for the trial, but maybe faith will be forged here and it'll prove that hope wins. Verse 12 of John chapter 1. To all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, not of a human decision, not of a father's will, but born of God. That doesn't mean things will always go as planned. It doesn't for my children. Just ask them. (laughs) But it does mean we have a good father in whom we can believe even when things don't go as planned. A good father who loves all, has space for all, invites all. And as children, he invites us into that work of inviting. Because as a friend of mine and this incredible writer, his name is Michael Cosper, puts it, we are meant for meaningful risk, not for mere self-protection. This risk might leave us feeling uncomfortable. It might leave us risking for the good of people who aren't all that good. It might lead us to listen more than it does talk. But to those who believe, to the children of God, we have the work of being tellers of stories and bringers of light because there's no one that should be left out. So the gospel writer drops this story of John right in the middle of his telling of light coming into the world. What are we supposed to do with that? We're supposed to remember. We're supposed to remember what we've seen. Advent is about remembering that God will show up. He will set things right. He will win in love and grace, but it's also about remembering that he did show up. He showed up in a manger. He showed up to live and love and die, sacrifice and serve for you. So Advent is about remembering where he has shown up for you because remembering where he has shown up for you is what leads to hope, that unrelenting, audacious hope that Jesus came to bring. First, remember what you've seen. And secondly, tell people what you've seen. Invite them in. Let them borrow some of your hope. For many, this season is one of fond memories. It brings back warm feelings, and that is so good. But for others, this is a difficult season. For others, it, it accentuates feelings of, of feeling like an outsider, feeling lonely. It actually makes the darkness feel darker in this season. Bring light. Show love. Invite people in. Invite people into your life. This week, this week, invite someone into your life, into your home, into this Place. I don't know if they'll say yes People are more open to invitations this time of year To hear the good news of the gospel Than they are at any other time of the year I don't know if they'll say yes But they might And it might change everything for them God uses people All kinds of people To witness and reflect his light So that all might come to believe So a witness sees But a witness also tells So that others can see as well What you see matters and how you respond to what you see matters. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that in the middle of this grand story of your love and your grace and your light coming into the world, you didn't leave us outside. We weren't just casual observers of it. You put someone like John right in the middle of that to remind us that you use people That your light shone in the darkness and the darkness can't overcome it. But part of how it is not overcome is by people witnessing the light, seeing the light, telling stories about your light. Thank you for that reminder. Thank you that you call all kinds of people that we don't have to be perfect because we are, your love, your grace is made perfect in our weakness. So I pray that this week we would be people who intentionally invite in, invite people into our lives, into our homes, maybe into this place, so that the gospel can go forth, so that all might believe. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.